I'm a student of patterns. At heart, I'm a physicist. I look at everything in my life as trying to find the single equation, the theory of everything. Will Smith The world in which we live often proves to be a chaotic place. Perched on the edge of a living bullet, we humans find ourselves trying and often failing to make sense of the universe as we propel through this seemingly endless journey through space. Over time, many different ways of processing this chaos have emerged, and many different types of people have evolved alongside them. What we once understood about how the mind works has proven to be woefully inadequate with the discovery of the neurodiversity paradigm. That we are a collection of many different types of minds that each see and process the world in different ways. And if we are to truly understand the chaos of our being and the theory that lies beneath everything, it only makes sense that we should need many different types of minds to do so. How does your mind see the world in which we live? Does the society in which you were raised accept the way your mind works? Or has it been a struggle for you to work within their arbitrary systems? As our theory begins to form, let me invite you to sit back, pour yourself a drink, and enjoy the show. I'm Rob Celtic, and this is Drinking and Dance at the End of the World. Hello and welcome back to Drinking and Dance at the End of the World. My next guest is an amazing house and hip-hop dancer of world renown, repping the city of Brooklyn while spending many years thriving in Japan with his wife and three kids. He is a veteran performer, teacher, and choreographer belonging to the legendary Elite Force, Mop Top, and Step Fence crews. And his favorite accomplishment is having found relative success in the dance world without compromising his integrity or the culture itself. He speaks Japanese, is deathly afraid of heights, and is here today to speak on how his caffeine addiction is slowly killing him from the inside, and how to keep it from <laughs> happening to all of you. That's right, coffee drinkers. The darkness is creeping inevitably towards us minute by minute, and the CEO of Starbucks will one day tap dance on all of our graves. Repent, and ye shall be saved. You've seen him perform with Mariah Carey, Will Smith, Lil' Kim, DeBrat, and the immortal Whitney Houston. You've seen him judge Just Boo and SDK. It is my absolute honor to welcome the one and only Brooklyn Terry to Drinking and Dance. Terry-san, yokoso. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> What's, What's good, everybody? How you guys doing? Um about uh, the CEO of Starbucks tap dancing on my grave, let me just tell you that the CEO doesn't tap dance on anyone's grave. He or she hires someone to do that because they have oh. the money. Oh my God. That's so true. Oh, how can I get that one so wrong? Uh, Terry, what are, you, uh, what are you drinking today? Uh, yo, 
Okay, so I'm about to piss people off and sound like a coffee fucking snob, right? Hell yes. So uh, I am drinking Kopi Luwak. No joke. Do you know what Kopi Luwak is? I, I educate Kopi me, Luwak. please. All right. So Kopi Luwak, for like the uh, coffee folks, they, they know who it is, what it is. Um, <laughs> it's it's cat shit coffee to be <laughs> like this is cat in Indonesia and they let the cat sift through the beans and the cat then eats the beans and then the poops the beans out, then they roast the beans and they make the roast kopi luwak. So there that's the simple <laughs> so I'm drinking cat shit coffee right now. I <laughs> I I think this is the first time in a year of doing this show that I have nothing to say. I'm, I'm happy I'm already sitting so, down. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be like this super big, like it, it's probably one of the most expensive coffees in the world. I tried it the first time I went to Indonesia a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Somebody went to Indonesia and brought back like uh, a little canister for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like as a souvenir and it's probably to be honest it it, when I first tried it because I'd heard about and heard how awesome it was um it was probably one of the most disappointing moments (laughs) in my (laughs) life when I tasted it it's like a DC movie oh shit big big shout out to Jade Zuberi Big shout out to Jade Solzuberi because I know when you listen to this, that's gonna hurt you right in your in your heart, right yeah, in your heart yeah. region. Oh, he's crying but, right now. But but Jade is more like of a Batman fan than a DC fan. Like there's a difference, right? You can be a Batman fan and not a DC movie fan. Dude, DC makes I good have... TV shows. All right, so shout out also to the Hip Hop uh, Comic Heads Facebook group because we, he and I have been members of this for years and he used to go so hard in the paint for DC. It was like, I was like, yo, man, you're getting, you're getting checks from the march. Like, you're a fucking shill. You sound like a shill. <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah Kofi so, um, was like a DC movie. Lots of hype and then it's just fucking coffee. Yeah, who knew you'd be fucking disappointed by drinking cat uh, cat shit coffee? Yeah, I thought but, I thought, hey, the, you know, the least that's gonna happen was I'd be shocked at the taste, but that didn't even happen. It was just coffee. Well, I mean, at the very least, thank you for my new side hustle because I have coffee beans and two cats who will eat anything. <laughs> I don't think that'll work. Though. Uh, hey, not with that attitude, man. This is America. <laughs> I mean, I know you're in Tokyo right now, but I'm in America where we used to make steel, goddammit. Yeah. And now you make COVID corpses. COVID corpses and just a lot of war. Um, yeah. So what do you drink? Oh, I've already asked you that. I just, <laughs> the cat shit coffee just threw me back 10 minutes. Like it's, I'm in a time warp. I want to, and also for the folks at home, I want to do a full disclosure here um, because often like I know that when you, when certain podcasters have their own program and, you know, or, or their YouTube channel or whatever, uh, they kind of, they want to, there's this temptation to make yourself seem better and cooler than you are or smarter, more clever. Um, And so to actively combat that, I want to let people know that um, when I was initially chatting with Terry about 
coming on and doing an episode. Uh, I did what I do for pretty much everybody else because you know I make those introductions that everyone seems to like so much. But to do that, I shoot a little questionnaire out. So one of the first questions on the questionnaire that I gave to Brooklyn Terry was, what city do you rep? I asked this of Brooklyn fucking Terry. And he was so nice about it. He was so nice about it. But I was just like, it was very much like, hey, man, are you okay? Is everything all right? You good? I'm like, yeah, I'm just tired. I'm tired. And it's been a long year. You'd be amazed how many people ask me where I'm from. And I just kind of oh. look at them and I say, what's my name? Like, I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not from Holland because, you know, there's a Brooklyn in the Netherlands. <laughs> I'm not from that one, right? I'm from, yeah. um, I'm from the colony. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, honestly, a week, a week ago, I would have been laughing harder at, at people who did that. And then I fucking fell into the same trap. So now I've got a lot to think about. <laughs> but while I think about it, I'm going to be drinking some organic yerba mate sparkling whatever the hell this is. Um, no, so, no cat shit. No cat shit coffee for me tonight. But again, I've got two cats and a bunch of coffee beans. Give me a week and I'll get back to you. Uh, <laughs> so everyone with drinks in their hands, uh, you, me, and everyone at home, let's raise them to the sky in a toast. Yep. Cheers to your health. Cheers to your health for real. Mm. Yep. One year into this pandemic, uh, come come a week from now for Americans anyway. Uh, yeah. So yeah, always important to remember. Um, um, so before we get started, my, my typical starting question is one that I will ask you, but I've decided I'm going to, for the first time, mix it up because I've gotten a lot of people uh, on the course of their uh, course of the program that say that one of the things they want to be asked most is legitimately and completely honestly, how are you doing? Like, how are you mentally, spiritually, physically? Like, how are you, man? Yeah, that is actually an awesome question. <laughs> I think that's a great question. Um, I'll just say I have my days. Uh, mm. In my 25 or so year career, this is the longest I've had to stay in one place in, in mm. 25 years, right? And yeah. so I, I have this kind of addiction to the road and addiction to traveling. And all of a sudden I'm plopped at home and it, it, it gets stressful. Like I can feel the walls closing in and mm. yeah. And, and the, the other stress is that I'm so far from home from, you know, my, my blood family, my mom, my brothers, yeah. my sisters, my cousins and, and, and my friends in the States, you know, my crew. So yeah, it gets a little bit isolated and lonely out here. So day by day, man, day by day, day by day. That's yep. how I'm doing. But the thing yep. that keeps and me going is I know that like literally the entire world is going through the same shit. So I just kind of oh. shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's important to talk about too. Yeah, like yeah. I, I read an article just this morning about like the long-term effects of uh, the trauma that everyone's going through. Even if, you know, and the author 
wrote like you know and i she, she these are her words like uh paraphrase she's like you know i'm coming from a place of extreme privilege i work from home i you know i haven't had mm-hmm. to do a bunch of shit that some of my friends have but at the same time like i lose basic memories that i've had for a long time i forget how to do things that i've known how to do like my entire life like yeah. i have this fucking existential trauma i feel like a hollow shell most you know so it's this this whole thing like this the, this year has done yeah, some pretty funky damage to our brains as mammals. It, it, it's crazy that you know, with all the shit that we do and that we've done in our life, like the most important thing that for all of us is just human interaction. And I think we forget mm-hmm. that. And people are talking about this addiction to social media, but the addiction is really, really pushed by this situation because of the need for any kind of human interaction so yeah yeah, and that's very interesting i never thought i never thought about it like that because in many ways like before 2020 i would have been on that same bandwagon but after 2020 i'm like yo social media kind of saved a lot of us yeah yeah don't trip we wouldn't be doing this right now (laughs) (laughs) exactly (laughs) we wouldn't be doing this right now so (laughs) exactly so thanks social media yeah for real Um, hey it's not the it's not the tool it's the user of the tool social media is simply a tool Mm. this is true this is true it's just it's unfortunate that you know it has been uh very badly misused and abused uh over Mm -hmm. the course of mm, let's say four years maybe and you know before that but you know uh you're right (laughs) capitalism (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> fucking capitalist yep. <laughs> so um now that we've now that we've gotten this good foundation going um and i'm very happy to hear that you are still you know doing your thing and, and fighting even though shit sucks um yes. my next question is who inspired you when you were coming up and who inspires you today damn who inspired me when i was coming up well okay so i because I'm African-American one. And because I grew up in the place and at the time that I grew up, like most of my, inf- my, my inspirations were like in my house, my mom, my sister, like my mom was the first person that I ever like danced with, you know, the, the whole thing. And she put me on her feet and she would do steps. And that was the Dope. first person I danced with. And then my sister, my older sister, who's eight years older than me, she used to take me to park jams and, mm-hmm. So, and she would push me in a circle as a little kid, just push me in a circle. My brother can dance and push me in a circle. <laughs> so that kind of inspiration is priceless. And she, like, not only did she take me to park jams, it's the jams that she used to take me to that I'm finding out as an adult was, like, legendary. There's a DJ oh, yeah? by the, yeah, the DJ by the name of um, Grandmaster Flowers was the DJ at the Park Jam and Grandmaster Flowers. Uh, he's one of New York's originals and Grandmaster Flash got his Grandmaster from Flowers. Wow. So I was going and absorbing that. My sister was taking me to those places to absorb that as a seven, eight-year-old, you know? So that yeah, is amazing. That was my main inspiration, my two. And then after that, it's like my crew. <laughs> Step Sorry, and, cut out. And Elite Force. I said, oh, and then okay, after that, it. it's just my crew. Got it, got it, got it, got it. Okay, cool. 
Um, well, speaking of uh, New York and Sessions, um, one of the last times I was privileged enough to visit New York, I, I got to talk with Bravo for a bit. Um, yeah. Shout out to Bravo Brams LaFortune, um, househead extraordinaire. So he was telling me um, about the history of house dancing, and he said that there were quite a few dancers that were inspired by the Central Park skaters. Mm-hmm. Um, from the research that I've done so far, uh, I learned that your father was a roller skater, uh, your mother yep. a dancer. So do you feel like skating influenced any part of how you move? And how do you feel about the apparent spike in popularity that roller skating is enjoying during the pandemic? Uh, well, do I feel, I'm just going to say, hell yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, the roller skating rink was my first club, just like, to be honest, for a lot of clubbers, it, it, it's their first club, you know, it's the first place you go and you rock out. And I used to mm-hmm. go to Empire, um, and at Empire, there's a spot in the middle, and ev- everybody would go in the middle and dance while people on the outside of the rink were skating. And in in the middle and on the rink were the Selby brothers. <laughs> I don't know if you know who the Selby brothers are. As in I got to be honest, Selby, I do not. Shannon Selby, Jeff Selby, like that whole family. The house dancer Shannon and the house DJ Shannon, Shannon. Okay. And okay. Uh, New Style Hustle. Jeff Selby, like that whole family of roller skate. And then my family, my older sister, my dad roller skates, and the family that kind of live, like my dad's family lived across the hall from the Shelby family. Like it's a crazy Brooklyn thing. But Yo. yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. So yeah, the whole skate thing, it's it's a huge part of who we are. A lot of the music that rock skate roll bounce was for skating you know what i mean so Mm. it's a huge part of what we are and i don't think that i would be the dancer actually i wouldn't even be alive without skating because my mother and father met (laughs) at empire roller skate (laughs) oh that's a beautiful thing right there (laughs) right so yeah it's definitely influenced and what do i think about it now yeah i think it's about fucking time that's like (laughs) seriously you know what i mean yeah it's just like Something that we all did. I did, I would say, uh, yeah, I did it as a kid, but I actually skated until I was an adult and continued to skate even as an adult. So, so it's not like, and then all of a sudden gentrification happened and wiped out all of the roller skating ranks in New York City. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I say it's about fucking time because if these people were skating, about seven or eight years ago, those mm-hmm. rings would still be there. Oof. <laughs> that, that, that hits. Damn. <laughs> those rinks would still be there. There would still be this rich, cultural, musical place to go and express and have fun and, and dance. You know what I mean? But, you know, yeah. now that it's back, I'm really happy it's back. My only complaint is, uh, where were you a few years ago? You guys got to the <laughs> got to the fight kind of late. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, definitely. Like, I can, I can, I can relate to that. Like, I, uh, I just started seeing um, within the last year. Everyone's stuck inside. 
so many of my friends just started like posting about roller skating and getting their first skates and doing, you know, learning how to do these tricks and shit. And, um, I, I always thought that was cool. I never did it myself. And it mm -hmm. was one of those things that like being a, a white kid raised in Iowa, like I knew how to roller blade. I knew how to like, you know, move forward in a circle <laughs> with wheels on my feet. Yeah. But it wasn't until I lived in Los Angeles and I joined King Charles's crew. Um, mm -hmm. Shout out Charles. Uh, Charles. I met one of my teammates. Yup. Charles, <laughs> baby. Um, Chuck. Uh, but uh, it wasn't until I joined the crew that I met um, one of my friends, Kimo. Um, mm -hmm. And Kimo had a birthday and he, he was like, hey, man, I'm going to do roller skating for my birthday. And I was like, OK, cool. I remember doing that shit in sixth grade. So yeah, not, uh, like first grade when I was six years old, I was like skating rink birthday party. Let's do it. Um, I had like, when I was a little kid, I did not have black friends. Mm -hmm. So I did not, it was a different conception of what I thought was going to happen. Cause I get into that roller rink with them and <laughs> they were doing just the most amazing shit. Like Omarion came to that party. Omarion, this back when he and um, I think her name was April were together, but like, they were like, skating around doing all these tricks and shit in disguises yeah and i'm sitting here going like this is the most beautiful fucking thing i've ever seen on wheels and i don't understand why it took me this long to see it <laughs> yeah it, it's such a like it's such a rich part of african-american culture and it's one of those rich parts of the culture that we don't get to speak about much and the reason it's so rich is Partially because <clears throat> back in the day, summertime, yo, we weren't allowed to go to the pool, right? There's so many places oh, we weren't damn. allowed to go to. So when these yeah. places open in the hood, this is the places that we could go. And we can go and forget about what all the racist shit happened outside. We can hear our music and we can do our dances on wheels, you know, <laughs> and have, have fun. So yeah, that's why it became so rich. The, the my only issue with it now, it's like, it's kind of starting in the same place that house, quote unquote, house dance started. It started mm -hmm. with the tricks as opposed to starting with the skating and the music. You know, everyone's jumping on skates. Yeah, in the groove, absolutely. Everyone's jumping on skates because they want to learn these tricks. But yo, if you ain't got that groove, I don't give a damn about your tricks. Like I can watch, <laughs> I can watch the black lady on skates with her bounce all night to the music, and she doesn't yep. have to do yep. any any tricks at all. It all starts with the groove, and I think right now that the skating thing is going in the same direction that the dance went. <clears throat> and mm. I hope that once everything opens back up, people go to the rink and actually skate around the rink. <laughs> mm. you know, yeah. Instead of doing you know their thing in a garage or in their living room with their neighbors downstairs complaining. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, it's 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 to be done with people. It's to be done with community yeah. and music. And I know when I mentioned groove, like a good portion of my listenership just rolled their eyes because that's the fucking central theme of this show, yeah. if anything is. Like, I've done multiple episodes on this stuff. Uh, so, yeah, for those listening in and have heard me talk this to death, like, it extends to every facet yeah. of the culture. It's not just the dance. It's also the roller skating. It's the music. It's, it's all so, of it. So, 
I, I, when I teach my workshops, I have this uh, kind of formula that I use. And the formula is groove, step, variation, direction, right? So mm. the groove is your mm -hmm. body's reaction to the music. Like it's what happens. Mm. It's what your body does when you like the song. It's not something that you force. It's not a technique. It is just that whether it's a head nod or just snapping of the finger, tapping of the foot, it's your body's reaction to the music. From that reaction, the step, the technique is born. Then you move mm. that uh, step around the room. Uh, then you switch the step up a little bit. That's variation. Then you move it around a room. That's direction. And it all starts with the groove. Like, yeah. Because my, Absolutely. my grandma ain't got no techniques, but she had loads of groove. <laughs> <laughs> the important yes. shit. Loads of groove. So that that leads me into my next question, actually, which is uh, speaking in your capacity as a veteran, as an OG, what are the newer generations doing within house and hip hop that you love to see? Mm -hmm. And conversely, what are their areas? What what areas do you think uh, that something might be missing? Um, what is it that I love to see? Well, I love to see them doing it, <laughs> you know, to mm. be, <laughs> because even though I'm the youngest from my generation, I still remember when we would travel the world on tour and we would go places and nobody was doing it's, it's in particularly the movement that we did to house. No one was doing it. And, a lot of young people mm. weren't going in the direction of house. Everyone was going, you know, towards hip hop, which of, of course that's going to happen, you know, outside of New York, that's where everybody was yeah. going. And people would get mad at me in LA because some people would be like, yo, we house dancing. And we'd be like, actually, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. But, you know, this is like maybe even 99-ish, 2000. So what makes me happy is that, wow, okay, I remember there being maybe 30 or 40 of us. And now you can't even begin to count how many people are doing this particular dance. So seeing, mm -hmm. getting to see it spread around the world actually makes me happy. What can Beautiful. be done now is, all right, so it's spread around the world, but only maybe a third of the message of what it's about is being told because it's only being done in performance and in battles. And actually, actually, that's yeah. less than a third of the message that needs to be told about the dance. At the battles, um, once someone loses the battle, they bounce, they go home. Like I've been to several after parties and the after party is Fucking empty, empty, empty. <laughs> because people don't party. Because people, people don't find any merit in the party. They don't find any merit mm. in the birthplace of the dance. And that is what needs to be changed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, if you're looking to get famous, you're, you know, there's no fame to be had at the party, well, right? It's all about the competition. Mm, that's not true. I mean, I got, I, I mean, got I know it's party. not true, but like the, well, yeah, but I mean, I'm, I'm trying to channel the mind frame uh, of people not going to the party. Hey, let me tell you, let me tell you, you go to the party, right? 
you meet your you meet the famous dancer and you smoke that motherfucker. Let me tell you how famous you're gonna be the mm. next day. <laughs> Yo, I mean Charles, like in in training in training us, like some of the first generations of Chicago footworkers who don't come from Chicago, mm. who aren't black, etc. Like he was the one telling me like consistently he's like yo go to these parties go to these ciphers go to the sessions yep fucking do all that shit like fuck fuck the battle itself like that is whatever yeah you know but go to these events and like dance and get in that circle and party because that is the most important and you know some people okay so let's we also have to deal with that the party atmosphere the party world the club world is not what it used to be Right. I don't I kind of don't live mm. in like the idea that it's going to be what it used to be. I'm sorry, guys. The 90s are never coming back. We lived at the end of the best club generation to ever, because from the 70s through the 90s, it was the absolute best. But it's over now. Um, but fuck Giuliani, you know, fuck him with a sharp pointy stick <laughs> sideways. <laughs> <laughs> that's a direct quote from an og y'all <laughs> for real so but when i say go yo go out go clubbing some people kind of misunderstand they think that i'm like yo go get drunk go hit on women go do drugs go act stupid uh, okay act mm. stupid yeah mm-hmm. yeah act stupid yeah i mean yeah i like acting stupid i get that out of your system yeah, yeah absolutely but when, yeah. what happens is when you go to the club right any art art in general is not just output Art in general is about input, the input you get, right? And it's not Mm. this kind of homogenous input. It has to be really rich, like a rich ecosystem of input that you're getting. So when I used to go clubbing, I would see the thugs. I would see uh, the LGBTQ community would be there, even though they weren't called that at that time. I would see the dudes hitting on women. I would see the gold dig women trying to get the dudes who had the money. Like, it is just so much happening in the club, right? And everyone has a vibe and everyone has a rhythm and everyone has this thing and you absorb it all. And it comes out in Mm. your art, whether it's dance, whether it's graphic, whether it's uh, MC or beat making or whatever it is, it comes out in your art and, when people talk about the 90s, especially in New York, the richness of, well, from the 70s to the 90s, the richness was the club. The richness was the amount of input that was happening in those spaces to give those artists the output that they could. And that's what's yeah. missing now because people don't go out to get that input. If you go to a session, everybody's thinking the same thing and the input is homogenous. If you go to a battle, there is no input <laughs> in the battle. <laughs> you know, so yeah, that's it. That's why you people need to go club it. Well, it's funny that you mention it like that, because I did read something a long time ago talking about um it was uh, just some book on like, you know, uh kind of shifting the way you think, hacking the brain, etc. Um, and they were talking about the idea of like what they call mimetic sex. Mm. So like memes are ideas that, uh, function right in, in terms of like viruses, Mm. right? So for a virus or any organism to like replicate or recreate, Mm. I'm butchering this horribly. One second. (laughs) 
So let's say bacteria, bacteria. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Bacteria for like uh, things to replicate, to, to recreate the best, the, the chances for the best for survival mm-hmm. are when two organisms, um, you know, uh, split some of their DNA and like, and swap. Right. Yep. Um, if everything's always homogenous, like it can be wiped out by, you know, disease yep. like very easily. But if genetics, if, uh, if we, if the genes keep mixing, uh, the off the the offspring are stronger. They're more adaptable. This is how our entire species evolved. Right? And that's why. You so these people were saying, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, God damn it. <laughs> so all that to say, they they said like the reason that like Hollywood doesn't come up with fresh ideas is because it's always uh-huh. the same people and all the all the ideas having sex uh-huh. are in them. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, and it's the same thing. So, the same thing in, in the dancing. Like, yo, this all of the new ideas, the new dances don't come off of the scene. It comes out of the hood, mm. out of the community, right? Because it's always fresh in the community. But the scene gets stagnant. Like I tell me mm. one dance that scene. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was like, I, I was half of me was like trying to think of a dance that came from the scene. The other half was thinking about all the biologists that like just drove their cars <laughs> off a bridge, listening to me talk about like molecular fucking. <laughs> he doesn't fucking get it. No. It's okay. Like, Anyway, um, it's okay. They, they got the point. Hey, I I studied theater in school, so <laughs> fuck it. Um, so there's a couple topics I want to get into, but they are um, fairly heavy. And since we are coming up on a break, I think the best thing for us to do is to uh, cut this uh, cut this part a little cool. short. Let's go freshen our drinks, do what we need to do, and when we come back. We are going to get noise. Nice. So my guest noise, my guest tonight, uh, this morning for him, because he is in Japan. Uh, my guest is the legendary Brooklyn Terry who represents Brooklyn. If you didn't know, uh, <laughs> and we will be right back. And we are back. My guest this morning is the legendary Brooklyn Terry, um, Elite Force, Mop Top, uh, and just an amazing dude. All. Um, so you are the co-founder of Japan for Black Lives, a movement that sprang from the murder of George Floyd and the feeling that Japanese people weren't engaging in necessary conversations about racism against black people, uh, despite benefiting from the fruits of black culture. Uh-huh. Uh, I had the privilege of speaking to Hiro Alma last year during one of my first interviews. And this was about a month before Floyd's death. Uh, and he'd said at the time that conversations about race weren't really happening in Japan. And this matches up with when I used to live in Tokyo, um, because I, I, you know, jumped into uh, this, that's where I first started getting serious about uh, African-American dancing myself. 
Um, and I didn't get any of that information there either. So since then, uh, you have held a massive online panel discussion and started Japan for Black Lives. So I was hoping you could speak a bit about what last year meant to you as a Black artist living in Japan. Cool. First of all, I want to clear something up. I am not the co-founder of Japan for Black Lives. Japan for Black Lives has one founder. Her name is Naomi Kawahara. I am mm. an advisor for mm. Japan for Black Lives. Um, I, I, this is, I don't know if this is a controversial idea, but I don't think I'm the face uh, that should be yelling that my life matters because there's something weird that happens when it's us saying that our lives matter. People call us bitter and angry. <laughs> so my whole idea is, yo, if you think this is unfair, you have the power to stop it way more than mm. we have the power to stop it. So <clears throat> she decided that she was going to do something about it and I would advise her with anything that she needed. Gotcha. So, yeah, thank you very first before we move on. It. Sorry. Thank you very much for clarifying. Uh my research only goes so far. So shout out to Naomi. Um sorry for interrupting, but thank you. No doubt, man. No doubt. Um so uh about that situation here, right? Um mm -hmm. I've always had a bit of a big mouth, which is probably why I'm not rich. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when this, I don't, uh, you know, I'm not going to take nobody's shit. So uh, a few years ago, so, you know, th this is not new. None of this is new. And mm. a few years ago, I made this post about the Japanese dance community. Like, hey, you guys do our dances. Where are you? Nobody's saying anything. Mm. Uh, I think it was around the... Fernando Castillo time. Um, oh, wow. And I made that post and that post got like, like seriously, nobody paid attention to it. And I'm always talking about black culture, the stances from my culture. I, I always have always done that. And yeah. then when George Floyd happened, it was the combination of COVID, uh, mm -hmm. social, social media, and being kind of a hostage in your own home, like no one could actually leave. So I yeah. made a similar post about where are your voices? Where is everyone that do these dances? And I, when I made the post, I asked Naomi to translate the post into Japanese because I don't want any excuses about I didn't understand the post. So that yeah. post kind of caught fire. Um, and it kind of blew up around japan or around the dancing in japan and then it started to even leave the dancing and so i figured i needed to do something with that momentum so i created the first break the silence uh break the silence um web talk and it was really good we had something like three thousand people viewing it live across two or three platforms which is mm. yeah it was insane um it, and it was good but what surprised me the most is how many people do the dances, participate, and I, I say this like very clearly, participate in the culture, mm. but have no idea about the people of the culture. Mm. So they totally see the culture as a product. Mm. And, and we are part of that product. Like, that's the way they see it. Like, if 
if you buy a bottle of shampoo, and that's not a ball joke. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's very considerate. I was I sitting here going, ooh, you got me again, Terry. Burn, motherfucker. <laughs> if you buy a bottle of shampoo, right, you, you're not really concerned with the ingredients. Let's just be real. People just, oh, yeah, I'm out of the bottle of shampoo. I throw the bottle away, buy another bottle of shampoo. Or, I, yeah, I don't need to use this brand anymore. I'm going to use a different brand. People see the culture as exactly the same. They can jump around. Like, I'm tired of doing hip-hop. I'm tired of doing house. I'm going to be a programmer this week. You know what I mean? So they don't see it as a culture. They see it as a product. So I asked the people to, that I had on there, like Rich Medina, Stretch, um, <clears throat> Mumu Fresh. Michelle uh, Bird. Michelle Bird. Like, I asked these extremely intelligent artists, Monsell, Monsell, <laughs> right? shout to out be, to Monsell. <clears throat> uh, to be on that panel because I know they're known as dancers, right? Yeah. Uh, especially here, they're known as their product, but they're not often seen as the people behind that product. So this time I wanted them to be on this panel and to be seen by the people here as the people, not the product. Mm. And I mean, I'm, I, I think it kind of started a bit of a movement, you know, I'm not really one to say if it did or didn't, but it helped out a little bit, I hope. And now me and with me advising and the team that we got for Japan for Black Lives are kind of still continuing the same fight even to this day here. It's, it's a whole different beast fighting the fight uh, for equality <clears throat> outside of the United States in the Eastern Hemisphere. Because mm. even though people here are inundated constantly with white supremacy, they don't recognize that they are so when you mention it to them, they're just like, what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> yeah. And then <clears throat> like I have, I see a lot of my activist friends from the States who have, want to have the exact same approach that they do in the States in the East, but it's not the same. The approach can't be the same because here you're talking to people who don't even know that they're being affected, who don't even realize that the room is radiated and they're getting cancer. They're just like chilling. Yeah. So you have to, you have to convince them in a different way to get out of that room. Hmm. Not like, not like at home where you can be like, get the fuck out of the room. It's on fire. And they realize it's on fire and they're just happy chilling while it's on fire. <laughs> here they don't I'm even realize it. Yeah, I mean, I, I come from the Midwest and, you know, I come from rural Iowa and definitely a lot of those motherfuckers do not know the room is on fire. <laughs> I, I think they, they noticed the room is on fire, but like that, that, and that's the whole thing. There's always a, a but mm -hmm. in America, but there's nothing we can do about it, but that's the way it is, right? That's the way I see in the United States in the middle oh, yeah, there are problems, but. so I mean, yeah. shame, shamefully, um, as some listeners may know, like I definitely 
was very blind to most of the problems for a good portion of my life up until about 2012, 2013, something like that. Like I, at that point I had been dating, uh, like I'd been in a very serious committed loving relationship with, uh, a, a black woman and still thought that white privilege was bullshit. I was, you know, I, I had met Charles at this time. Like I was still, I, I had just been, um, you know, initiated into a crew. Um, the thing that, that spun everything for me was um, like going to church with chemo uh, wow. right after the Zimmerman verdict was announced wow. and being like one of the only white people in that room and actually like experiencing like what, you know, just seeing the, what everyone was going through that's what it took and like if i had stayed in iowa i wouldn't have had any of that and i i don't know that i would have been able to acknowledge that there was a problem i know that my father and i have had like screaming arguments at each other because he has refused to see that there was a problem or if there was a problem that it was purely economic and not understanding that like you know well the role that race has to play with that i'm gonna agree with your father for a little bit about the economic thing because and the the reason I say I'm going to agree with him is this, especially as an Irish American person, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> who were who class wise, let's just be honest, were seen exactly the same as we were seen as black people, mm. and they use the Irish especially to hold black people back and just use the excuse that, hey, at least you're not black. So the difference that they knew, they knew the only difference was economics. Like, we're in this class, we have this much money, but both of you guys down there on the bottom, you have neither. So what we'll do is we'll create this fake thing called blackness and whiteness to separate you. So your dad is right. It is about economics, but it's not about economics in the way he thinks it is. Yeah. And that, that was the thing too. That's a, a reckoning uh, with the whole family tree is that yes, like the Irish, when we uh, originally came to America, like we were treated horribly, like never, never to the point of like chattel slavery, like the whole Irish slave thing is a myth. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and I will scream that from the goddamn mountaintops, but the problem, you know, like once that that's, that's the troubling thing is that whereas most of us should have automatically had this empathy because we were going through a lot of similar shit. Once Mm -hmm. the ladder was extended to us to get into this class of whiteness and, you know, get into this privileged class. Once we were accepted into the fold, it was fuck everyone else after that. You know, like we, we, (laughs) we took the ladder with us. We pulled that shit up with us, you know? Yeah. And it was meant to do that. And that's what whiteness was meant to do. It was meant to keep separate for, you know, to, to pull the ladder up and just leave the people at the bottom to continue, continue that like idea of separateness. Yeah. But in, in, in fact, um, a lot of, especially the first rich Irish folks were still not even accepted. (laughs) (laughs) Still not even accepted. Just like the first rich black folks were still not even accepted because they didn't meet the class of whoever said these other motherfuckers had some kind of class, right? So it, 
it, it's all kind of your dad's right. It's like, but he's right on the wrong side. Mm. <laughs> that makes sense. Your dad's right, but he's right on the wrong side. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, too, it's like whenever I hear the thing about economics, right, which it, like absolutely I, I acknowledge that economics plays a huge part in this whole quagmire that we have. Um, but it also reminds you the, the same people that are like, oh, the Civil War was about states rights and their economies. And I'm like, yeah, their rights to own slaves and their economies built on slavery. Like, mm-hmm. like divorcing the economics from the race aspect is, you know, ludicrous. Yeah, and that hey, yeah. that's capitalism. <laughs> capitalism. capitalism. It was capitalism all along. It was capitalism. But yeah, it's um like uh, when we talk about economics, we got to go back to Martin Luther King and remember why he was killed. He wasn't killed for fighting for civil rights. Let's be clear. He was killed for trying to get the poor to work together to end mm. poverty. And that is why he was killed. You're fucking with our money. Remember yeah, that'll that. do it. <laughs> so, ooh, that got deep real quick, didn't it? Ooh, well, that, I, hey, I did promise before we went on break. <laughs> yeah, first half is laughy, laughy, jokey, jokey. Second half, we get deep. Yeah. And also laughy, laughy, jokey, jokey. Um, but speaking of which, you mentioned when we started chatting about doing this interview that it was very important for you to talk about the fact that you are dyslexic and have ADHD yes. because of the large number of folks within the community who are out there probably listening right now and don't know how to deal with it. Um, one of my partners, I'm polyamorous, so I, I have to specify that. One of my partners is black and recently learned that she most likely has a combination of autism and ADHD. Mm. And she wrote to me uh, a few questions that she'd like me to ask you, which I will get to in a moment. But I would first like to ask you how your journey to understanding your neurodivergence began. Um, well, it began in no maybe right after high school i went to laguardia community college right after high school uh and during high school i to be honest i just thought i was dumb like i was just like i can't do this i'm so stupid i don't know why i can't do this i can't focus i can't read this book i'm so dumb so but i could dance and i could make people laugh so that that helped you know to balance things out on my confidence side but um, I went to LaGuardia and I was having trouble. And one of the counselors at LaGuardia said, hey, I want you to take this test. And, I, you know, this is in like 92, 93. And this person had the kind of awareness to ask me to take the test. So I took the test and the test showed that I was dyslexic. And she was like, hey, you have mm. dyslexia. And then she was like, yeah, Bill Cosby's son has, was, is dyslexic, blah, blah, blah. And we started to talk about it in all the ways I could handle it. And so she was helping me to deal with dyslexia. And that, that led me to thinking other things, like how did I make it out of high school with dyslexia? Like it's either one or two ways. Either the one way is like they were just rushing young black folks to get out of high school to collect that tax. Or maybe mm-hmm. I just I, I just kind of skated by, you know. So I, yeah. I I'm not dyslexia and being illiterate are two totally different things. So I am not illiterate. 
I can read, of course, but things get jumbled up and it'll take me a lot of time and it, it becomes a lot of work. Um, mm. Just dealing with life, traveling around as a dancer, reading contracts, you know, before that, those situations didn't come up a lot. Like you have to sit down and read a, an entire contract. So when it came up, I could deal with it because it wasn't so much that I would have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. But, but as things started to change and go towards everything being cyber and online and everything having to be read constantly all day long, then I started to feel the effects of dyslexia. And the way I deal with my dyslexia now is, dude, I just, um, I, if I need to sit down and read something extremely deep, I select it and I put uh, text to speech. <laughs> then I listen to it because I'm good with that. And nice. if I don't want to make a bunch of typos and I am the typo king of the universe, <laughs> what I do is I do speech to text. And that helps me to deal with the situation and it kind of gives me a little bit of a shortcut. Um, during the pandemic, I have to sit down and I have to focus. I'm forced to be in this space and I was getting like extreme anxiety. So yeah. a friend of mine told me to take, hey, take this test, you know, see what happens. And the test showed that I, I was ADHD. <laughs> Damn. And I was like, and this is, uh, mind you, I'm 47. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I've been living mm-hmm. like that my entire life, pretty much, with ADHD. And I've just been moving all the time. And because of my lifestyle, there's so much input all the time that I don't get bored. I don't feel antsy because everything is new every day. And I, that's kind of a good situation for a person that has ADHD, at least, you know, in my case. So I was yeah. doing fine. But then when everything shut down, I literally felt like I was losing my mind. Like I'm going to jump out of my skin. I can't stay still. I need s- just some kind of um, stimulation all the time or, or I'm like I'm just going nuts. Yeah. So that I am still learning to deal with because this situation mm. has not changed. Um, yeah, that one, I, I still don't have yeah. quite a grasp on. And I think it's important for us to clarify because we have these terms thrown around a lot. Um, let me back up. Like, for example, like with my partner, she for a long time was misdiagnosed with certain mental health issues. Uh-huh. Right. And so she had to take medication for those issues and they would kind of help and they would kind of not. It was very clear that the root cause of what was going on was not being addressed, but we didn't know why. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, it's cool that like in our society today, mental health, mental illness, uh, the stigma for that is disappearing and we're getting a lot more understanding, right. Yeah. Of, of the, how widely common it is and how it affects so many people. Neurodivergence, however, dyslexia, autism, ADHD, like any of the uh, spectral conditions that we're talking about, um, conditions on the spectrum, uh, that doesn't have the same amount of, of understanding yet and the removal of that stigma. We don't really know. Folks will throw around the words um, obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, mm-hmm. or ADHD, like it's this fun, cute little thing 
like oh i'm so random i have adhd no. or like oh i'm so i have ocd because i clean a lot like <laughs> no no motherfucker <laughs> like to be neurodivergent di- is something I'm just learning about secondhand from somebody who is, you know, doesn't have a lot of information, didn't grow up with a lot of information. Yeah. It's a very confusing and painful fucking process exactly. because you don't understand why your brain works differently than everyone else's. Exactly. Like I said about high school, I, when the teacher would say, hey, read this, read this and, and write this. And I'm just like. Like that is a painful thing because I know I can, I just cannot put everything together or it just doesn't stay. And, and it's hard to explain because when you say, oh yeah, I have dyslexia, people say, do you read backwards? But it's not that easy. It's not really easy to explain what it is even. Mm. And ADHD, it's also not so easy to explain to someone that doesn't have it who isn't on a spectrum but if someone is on that spectrum they get it immediately and mm. that also makes it difficult for people to understand and that's why they they're like some people are just like oh it's in your head or, oh this thing is not real yeah but this shit is real and we do go through that shit and just because you aren't there and you don't understand doesn't mean that it's not real and even that like, and there's that, Sorry, go on. That in my relationship with my wife, because she doesn't understand, it even has affected us sometimes. Mm. Damn. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, I'm trying to find this thing. Sorry, one sec. Shit. Uh, because in doing my research uh, for this, I found, um, unsurprisingly, that. Uh, conditions like this are misdiagnosed and underdiagnosed uh, in people of color, in populations of color, specifically African-American black, black people. Um, this, this is uh, like everything else. It disproportionately affects like uh, vulnerable uh, portions of our population. So I found an article um uh, which I will include in the show notes. And I'm going to read an excerpt from that, if that's okay. It's called Children Left Behind nice. by Devin Fry. It's on uh, the Attitude Mag um, uh, website. So um, he says, well, actually he writes, um, ADHD is not a privileged disability, said Paul Morgan, PhD, professor of education and director of the Center for Educational Disparities Research at Pennsylvania State University. We don't want a situation where ADHD is a condition for wealthy white families. We want to be helping children who have disabilities, regardless of their race or ethnicity. But what we're finding is consistent evidence that white and English-speaking children are more likely to be identified, and that's an inequity. The reasons for these disparities are complex, experts say, and correcting them will involve a multi-pronged approach that will most likely take decades, if not longer, to implement. But the ramifications of ignoring the problem are more severe. Properly diagnosed and treated ADHD can change the arc of a person's life, helping her manage everything from schoolwork to relationships to career, critical areas where people of color often face already strong disadvantages. Undiagnosed ADHD, on the other hand, particularly its high association with risky behavior, drug use, and depression can be deadly. And, you know... uh... ADHD and dyslexia is even 
more underdiagnosed in women. So imagine being a black woman. And autism. And autism as well. So, okay, so my mom, my mom, who I am sure is dyslexic, (laughs) who I'm absolutely sure, (laughs) if you look at her, like, Mm -hmm. one of her books that she jots down notes in, you can, like, oh, yeah, this is, like, classic dyslexia. This is what I know from my world. So when she was young and going to school in Brooklyn, um, about to go to just in her first year of junior high school, she was having problems ingesting what they were trying to teach her. She had a quote unquote learning disability. So they wanted to put her mm. into special ed class. And we, you know, we all know what special ed is, right? And that class back yep. then was like people that had serious mental disabilities. So it was maybe kids with um, autism, you know, they, so it was way beyond where she was. And my grandmother back then was just like, oh, hell no. So my grandmother pulled my mother out of school in the first year of junior high school. So until my mom was 35, she didn't have even a uh, high school education. She went, she got her GED. So my, my mom is a a survivor of this whole thing and now i'm just i as an adult recognizing the things that i see and i have in myself i recognize that with my mom and i realize that oh my god they kicked my mother out of school well my mother had to leave school because she was dyslexic so it's a mm. really yeah it's it's a strange kind of awakening thing and then my mom is the bomb she and, still survived oh i mean clearly <laughs> um but also, I mean, like going back to the, those uh, the old timey special education classes, like when we're talking about like, you know, the kids in there at autism, we're talking so far on the spectrum as to be non-functioning in uh, neurotypical society, exactly. like people who, who um, are so like isolated within their their own nervous systems and have a problems processing um, sensation that they can't like speak yeah. You know, that's actually like a lot of people who were autistic uh, in the old days were simply diagnosed as deaf. Yeah. They were sent to schools for the deaf because it was just assumed that they couldn't hear when they absolutely could. They just couldn't. They were processing yeah. things differently. And that's a so, whole different world. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm learning all this different world of what yeah. dyslexia or ADHD is. And it's just like you don't treat them the same that you don't you don't treat cancer like you treat a cold. You know, it, it's just two totally different things. And I'm not going to give this person with a cold um, <laughs> the same medicine that I would give a person with cancer because that it would kill them. But also, but also within cancer, like cancer is a word that describes a hundred distinct Yeah, on diseases. the spectrum, right? Like they're all, <laughs> yes, on the spectrum, exactly. So I'm all learning, I'm learning all this shit in real time, y'all. So. <laughs> For those out there who are neurodivergent and uh, if I've gotten anything wrong or if I've, if we like miss anything on this discussion, please reach out, please uh, shoot me a message, Rob underscore Celtic on Instagram. Um, and let me know. Cause I definitely want this information. Hell, out let there. me but know sorry, too. Go, going back to what let you were me talking know too, about. Because I'm still yeah. trying to figure myself out and I'm almost fucking 50. And that's what's scary. Speaking of which. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, it's, it's better that I at least, at least you got it in your forties instead of like, you know, going more decades yeah, without, right. but 
it's it's i have to imagine it, there must be some level of bitterness to like if i had known this man, when i was 10 motherfuckers man, listen. Like, <laughs> some parts of me have the bitterness but i i've come to see uh my neurodivergence as my superpower because i don't think i would hear mm. and understand the music the same if i didn't have what i have right it, it, it's come out in a different way and it's yeah. worked for me i've been able i created my own workarounds and I, i've been able to travel the world for two decades two and a half decades you know so if if you can find your workaround you got it you can do it and that's exactly what i wanted to talk to you about uh following this because um going back to my partner who is a black woman who was undiagnosed um and misdiagnosed with all this other shit finally finding like you know something that makes sense in in her neurodivergency like finding areas that she now knows she can work on um like she lost a job she was fired for being autistic um a like almost 10 days ago right within that 10 days she sat down like started planning out her entire life like doing all these stuff with planners and like all these um little workarounds that she never thought of before got her ass hired to a better job within that span and like rose to the occasion in a way that I previously never thought possible. But when she found out I'd be talking to you, she asked that I asked these two questions um, to see if you had any tips and tricks for sharing with people that, um, you know, have ADHD Um, because she has that mix of ADHD and autism. So uh, the first is how do you structure your day as a creative with ADHD? And the second is how do you set long-term goals? Um, Wow. Those are two of the exact same things that I struggle with. Um, How do I structure my day? Which I think is why she asked. How do I structure my day? To be honest, I, I just do whatever pops into my head and that that's not always good. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I know that's probably not the answer that anyone is looking for, but at the same time, I'm just learning how to deal with this thing too because of COVID. I'm locked at home, and usually, my it's where you're at exactly, right now. Usually, my day would be structured. It'd be like I gotta catch this flight at this time. I go uh, check into my hotel. After that, I go to the event and I do whatever I have to do at the event. Judge, blah blah blah. Come back, drop my stuff off again. Go back to the event and DJ. Next morning, I teach. After the lesson, come back, grab my stuff, go onto a flight. Like that's usually everything is mapped out, right? But now, mm-hmm. because I have to kind of create my own schedule, it, it's really difficult. It's really, it's really not, mm-hmm. not an easy thing. So I don't quite have the answer to that one yet. Um, and my, the way I deal with long-term goals, I can actually deal with long-term goals better because I, I leave them wide. You know what I mean? I don't want to. I don't want to say like, by the time I'm 55, I want to have this little tiny pinpoint thing. I kind of leave it mm-hmm. wide, and then I, I'll aim at that place. But I also don't push away the things that come. Like if another idea comes, I don't exactly push it away, because my idea is to get on the mm-hmm. road towards that thing, and 
whatever, you know, start the journey towards that goal that I have, but also have the presence enough to recognize the opportunities that come. And I think that's mm. the way that I've gotten to this point in my career. Um, because it, it's hard to, for me to make that goal and say, this is what I want to do. Mm. And I know people that like, I, I'm going to make this goal. I'm going to plan everything out to get to that point. I mean, how that's my, that's my wife. You know, she does that. <laughs> um, and God bless, bless her heart. <laughs> and I'm like, I just can't do yeah. that. Right. So I have to. Must be fucking yeah, nice. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so jealous. I'm so jealous. <laughs> I am a hater. <laughs> uh, drink deep on that haterade yeah, and yeah, cash yeah, and drink, coffee. That's, drink deep on that haterade and cash and coffee. By the way, I deal is coffee. No, it's joking. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, uh, to be honest, I am also figuring it out as well. Um, so somebody was like, Hey, uh, what you should do is write notes for your day. And I'm like, yeah, that works for one, but the other one won't let me write the note. (laughs) 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 That works for the, maybe the dyslexic part, but the ADHD won't let me write the note. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, it gets, it gets, it gets weird, man. I, I don't I don't even have the answers. I am so sorry I don't have the answers, but I'm trying to figure it out too. No, but that's the thing too, is that like this is your honest answer based on where you're at in the journey. And I think it's important for us to get those snapshots. Um, because one day you very well may figure it out and we do a part two and like, like people can go from one to the other <laughs> yo guess what get this app <laughs> like yeah but one thing hey for, uh, on a dyslexia on dyslexia side for real those apps that read stuff to you it is awesomeness it is absolute mm. awesomeness um mm-hmm. yeah thank you because <laughs> i don't know what i would do it, things would be a lot more difficult if i didn't have that and uh on the adhd slash autism for those who have that particular cocktail um i can see if my partner is willing to share some of the apps she used uh to restructure her life after getting fired and you know uh jump into that next level Uh, i'll see if she can include any of that information as well um if you're listening out there and and uh if any of that stuff helps you or if you know something that we don't, if you've got some strategies, if you've been dealing with what Terry's been dealing with, uh, reach out, let us know. And, um, that's going in the show notes as I, well. I have one bit of advice and it, I, I'm not one of those like esoteric type of people, but this does work. Mm. Meditation really does work. It quiets that storm that you constantly have as a person with ADHD that's in your head. Like there's always a storm Mm. of insane stimulation. If you're not stimulated, like that happens in your head. And if you uh, can just take a pause, go somewhere, sit down and try to meditate for five or 10 minutes, it does help to quiet that freaking storm, at least for a little while. It's still coming back, (laughs) but it, it really does help. And I just started meditation about a month ago and it, yeah, yeah, it helps. 
Absolutely. Um, there's a reason it shows up in so many different spiritual practices all over the world. Yeah. Like before we had most things, we had right. that. <laughs> that was the first Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the first Netflix was like cave paintings. Nah, 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 nah. Meditation. <laughs> nah, it was a dude shit. sitting on a rock watching the animals. So- that was the first. That's meditation. <laughs> that's meditation. <laughs> and then he made kung fu. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I got a couple more questions uh, before we got to bounce. Um, so as mentioned in the intro, you are a proud father. Yes. Um, you've uh, three children. So, Did right, I get that number right? Oldest... Like I'm. My research is I, kind of I spotty. do have three children, but with my current wife, we have two. And my oldest is, wow, she is about to be 25 in a few days. Jesus Christ. She lives in New York. She's about to be 25. What, oh, dude, that is the age where everything goes yeah, crazy. Hey. At least for me. Yeah, yep, wow. she's, she lives in Shut New up. York. And yeah, wow. <laughs> she's a dancer. She's a dancer. As well, Her yeah. name is Miabi Wright. <laughs> she's the bomb. Yabi, shout out me. She is um she's the absolute <laughs> bomb. But all of my children dance. My two little ones also dance. Mao and Zion also dance. You know? Aww. It it's kind of like you grow up in the atmosphere. It's not even like they have a choice. I mean, if you think about Miyabi's life, her dad is me, <laughs> her uncles are elite force and um yep. electric boogaloos. She and her aunties and uncles are dance fusion. You know what I mean? It's just like what Choice? Yep, that's the family. What choice do you have? You know what I mean? <laughs> her Sibo yep. is her stepdad. Like, and you know, Sibo's, yeah, no yeah Sibo's her stepdad. So it's just like, what choice do you have? You're oh. a dancer. Yeah, I know. It, it's, oh. it, it, that, that's what she's going to do. So, that's freaking beautiful. I remember when she was just like, I want to so, do hair. And I was just like, yeah, all right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> We'll see. We'll right. see, kiddo. <laughs> so um, my question is, what legacy do you hope to leave for your children and those who come after? Uh, well, what legacy do I hope to leave for my children? Uh, as a dad of three brown children on this planet, I hope to leave things a little bit, at least a little bit better for them than it was for me, mm. um, especially here in Japan, mm. where my two little ones live, and they're way before, far behind. So I, that's one mm-hmm. big legacy. You know, I'm not tripping like I'm going to change the entire world overnight. No, I don't think that. But <laughs> I want to be like that little drop that hits the water that starts with, that helps to with the rest of the ripples that are in the water to create change. And the next part of the legacy is I hope to build up the party scene so my kids can go out and party and have the same exact adventures and creativity and input to their creativity that I had when I was younger. So, yeah. Sir, if there is anything I can do to assist, (laughs) I will die on that fucking hill with you. (laughs) Oh, captain, my captain. Um, I'm standing on my desk. I, I, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be the founder of one of the most popular parties in Japan, Speakeasy TYO. 
you know, me, I'm mm. co-founder, me and my partner, her name is DJ Sarasa. We started this party seven years ago and Shout it out. became, the only reason it's on pause is because of course Corona, but it became the most popular party in all of Japan. Like I would go to like the other end, way down south in Japan and people are like, I know Speakeasy. And I'm like, how do you know the party if you live here? But yeah. <laughs> That's my contribution to uh, the culture. You know, people don't, you, there's no showcases. There's no battles. There's mm-hmm. just a bunch of good DJs. Mm-hmm. You can bring your kids because it's in the daytime and you party and then you like, wanted to create a block party type of feel. So, yeah. That is beautiful. All right. Well, um, in that case, we have one final question if yep. you're down. All right, and that is, uh, I think Monsell still hasn't forgiven me for asking him this. Uh, what have you always wanted to be asked? What have I always... Or conversely... Yeah. Uh, what's one question you've always wanted to be asked? Or conversely, what is one answer you have always wanted to give? Damn. <laughs> what? Well, I... <laughs> I you can I'll, choose. I'll with, you can the, choose between the two. I'll go with the question I've always wanted to be asked. Um, okay. Maybe it would be like, what is your theory behind the way you dance? Maybe nobody really asks the theory question. I think people ask more the technical. So, uh, Terry. Yeah. What is the theory behind the way you dance? <laughs> it was a trick. <laughs> there was no choice. Ah, <laughs> uh, so. Okay, when I was when I was younger, of course there was no theory, right? But as you grow older, the theories come. Mm-hmm. Oh, the way I dance is my theory is about um, texture. It's about uh, movement quality, uh, shape. So, movement quality. If you match that with music, it's dynamics. I don't know if you know about dynamics. It's the difference between the quiet parts and the loud parts. When you listen to the music, right, mm-hmm. you have the a good mix has great dynamics, right? That would be movement quality. Um, texture in music is kind of obvious. You know, some songs make you feel this way and that's off. Some songs make you feel a little bit harder because that's the, the texture song is harder. Um, and every mm-hmm. single sound has a shape. I don't know if that's just my dyslexia time. Mm. The sound of the shape. Um, so, and that's my theory. It's like you have to copy the music more than just the beat itself. More than just the tempo or the simple mm. rhythm. You have to become the music, shape, sound, dynamics, the entire thing when you dance. Because our job is to create this picture of the music to put out there for people to understand. I think a perfect example of that is Link. Perfect Mm, example is Link because look, you can watch him dance and turn the music off and that's still the best song you've ever heard. Right? So that's the perfect example. He kind of fits my entire theory of dance perfectly. So that's it. Well, let me say, uh, I've said it before, I'll say it again. It has been an absolute honor 
uh, to be able to have this conversation here, with you. Same here, man. Uh, yeah, Terry san Yo, last thing is, yo, man. So, um, the the term legend for me is still really weird. I am still a fan. Call me a legend when I'm dead. I'm still a fan. Uh, well, you totally could have brought this up at the beginning. I've been doing it all through the episode. I didn't didn't want to cut you off. I just wanted to leave that. I wanted to leave people with that one. All right. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, you heard the man. Definitely not a legend. Wink, wink, (laughs) winkity, wink, wink, wink. Um, and Terry, how can folks follow you? How can they keep uh, um, keep track of well, what you're doing nowadays? Instagram, just like everybody else, not TikTok. I'm sorry, I cannot do that. Um, catch <laughs> catch me on <laughs> catch me on the gram, Brooklyn Terry EF on Instagram, and uh, you can find me in the old people space on Facebook. <laughs> Same thing, Brooklyn Terry. <laughs> uh, so yeah, if you want to keep up with me and my rant, Perfect. you can find me on my instagram and facebook hey man one of those rants changed japan so i wouldn't talk (laughs) down about it all right so uh anything else you want to leave any final thought you want to leave the first one before we bounce final thought is please stay healthy both mentally and physically stay safe and when this shit is over remember what happened after the uh the 1918 pandemic the roaring 20s happened, so when this shit is over, we go party for the next 200 years. And what we... I love that energy. (laughs) And in the spirit of that, for everyone listening to this episode, you know what comes next. We all raise what's left of our uh, drinks to the sky in the traditional toast of this show, which is to the end of the world. Cheers. Cheers. Come All right, come five. So, um, my guest, my guest tonight is the amazing, uh, not <laughs> legendary uh, Brooklyn Terry. Um, I'm your humble host, Rob Celtic, and we are signing off. We will endure, we will grow, and we will overcome. God Peace. bless. This episode of Drinking and Dance at the End of the World was written and produced by me, Rob Celtic. Music for this episode was provided by the one and only Feathers. That's F-T-H-R-S. You can find his new album floating on Spotify and Bandcamp under Feathers. If you like what you heard and you want to support the show, visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash drinkingandance and donate for early episode releases, bonus episodes, personal shoutouts, and more. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to like, favorite, and follow on Spotify and Anchor. We'll see you next time.